Former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, and President Joe Biden have not much in common, but they did all get caught up with classified documents they took home. The incidents show a lot of things, including how cumbersome the classification itself is. My next guest spends a lot of time explaining just what a challenge it is. Yale Law Professor Ona Hathaway joins me now. Ms. Hathaway, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And just review for us the sheer volume of documents that are classified in an era when the last five presidents have said we're going to default toward openness in our administration. Yes. So president after president has made such promises, and yet president after president has produced more classified documents than the president before them. In the last year that the government kept records of the total number of classified documents, which was back in 2017, they found that they had produced about 50 million new classified documents that year. So it's a lot of documents. And is that resulting just from the risk-averse nature of government? A lot of things are in place that can say no. Very few things are in place that can say yes, just because a yes could result in some political disaster down the line. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big reasons that there's a kind of default towards classification over non-classification. There's a lot of different features, though. I mean, there's that. It's, you know, so much less risky to classify something than to not classify it. If you're working on something that maybe, you know, it possibly is classified, it's just a lot easier to classify it and a lot less dangerous for you personally as a person working with the material. Because if you accidentally create a document as unclassified that contains classified information, you get in a lot of trouble. You get fired, potentially even be criminally prosecuted. But if you classify something that doesn't need to be classified, it's not a big deal generally. So that certainly creates a lot of incentives. But there's a lot of other reasons that somebody working on classified material tends to work to classify things or classify them more highly. It's also the case that when you work in a classified environment, you have multiple email servers. So you'll have your unclassified email server, you have your secret email server, and you have your top secret email server. So think about the fact that how overwhelming your one inbox is, you have three inboxes suddenly that you have to monitor. And the top secret gets a lot less stuff and it's a lot more interesting. And so if you want somebody to read what you're writing, you're gonna put it in a more highly classified level because it's much more likely to be seen. So that's another reason that there's sort of this impetus towards putting things at a higher level. Yeah, the moral equivalent of putting the exclamation mark on the email is to classify it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and it's also the case that um, when you're working with classified material, you don't want others to see it, right? You don't want it to be leaked. And so if you put something in a classified server, you classify it, it's much less likely to get leaked. So there's lots of reasons that for people working with classified material that they're more likely to, to classify something, even if the risk of it being leaked isn't really going to do any significant damage to U.S. national security. And the other question in all of this is the fact that what was found was not emails, it was not electronic, it was boxes of paper in all these cases, you know, next to the Corvette or on the floor, you know, there in Mar-a-Lago, wherever, I don't know where Mike Pence's was. But it seems like there's a lot of printing out of these emails or or documents are generated in some hard fashion, hard copy fashion that seems to belie the digitization drive that goes back 
that really began late George H.W. Bush and got a lot of momentum in the Clinton administration. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the reasons we're seeing this at the levels that we're talking about, so we're talking about the vice president, former vice president and president, is that they're more likely to generate written documents for their consumption. So, you know, Joe Biden's not reading his, would guess, his, his, his email inbox. People are managing the flow of information to these high-level government officials, and they generally are managing the flow of this information through production of written documents that get handed to them um, during meetings. Um, and those documents, some of them, you know, the very highly classified documents, generally the best practice is for the briefer to take the documents with them when they leave. Um, but occasionally there's reasons for members to want to hold on to that material. They want to be able to read it and review it. They have a meeting coming up. They want to review it in advance. Part of a collection of briefing materials, which includes both unclassified and classified documents. And in many cases, probably some of these documents just are not such a big deal. And so nobody's really thinking that carefully about, you know, making sure that the document gets put back into a locked environment. We're speaking with Yale Law Professor Ona Hathaway, and there are rules, though, about taking notes and so forth. And so the printouts that are made for presidents and vice presidents, and I don't I don't to my knowledge, there is no computer PC terminal in the Oval Office that the president pecks away at. I I don't think that's I think that's the case. Then they get boxed. And how is it? What's the process by which they can even get their hands on the boxes? Yeah. So, you know, when they're leaving office and, and of course, this is all all the events that we've heard about recently are when the vice presidents and presidents have been leaving office and then documents get taken with them that should have been turned over to the National Archives um, or locked up um, for use by their successors. Um, and how does that happen? I mean, part of the reason that that happens um, is that you know, in the in the case of particularly former Vice President Pence and um, the documents that we're dealing with for Biden were documents that were produced when he was vice president and were boxed up when he left. In those cases, what happens is they're coming to the end of their term. There's kind of a scramble at the end of vice presidential and, and presidential administration to kind of figure out, you know, what can we take with us? What can't we take with us? Kind of bat- boxing up sometimes in a hurry um, because you you are trying to run the government um, up until the last moment. I mean, you are still vice president up until the inauguration. So you still have to be doing your job. Um, and then they have to box things up in a very short period of time and get it out of there so that the new occupants of the office can move in. And it's not the vice president, you know, Vice President Pence, Vice President Biden are not sitting in their office boxing the stuff themselves, right? There's a crew of aides who are doing that work. And they're in a rush and chances are good. And we don't know the specifics yet, but chances are good that what happened is they're looking at piles of paper, the vast majority of which are unclassified and sticking them in a box, not entirely realizing that there's some classified documents buried in there. I understand, for instance, with Biden, that a lot of the materials were condolence letters from the death of his son, and that many of these boxes were just boxes and boxes of condolence letters. And it happens to be a case that sort of in there, not great record keeping, but in there are some documents that are marked classified. You know, that sort of thing happens. The problem is that when you're the vice president, you're working with classified material, those kinds of mistakes really shouldn't happen. Yes. And is it fair to say or accurate to say that for each of those pieces of paper, there is an electronic analog somewhere 
and so that you could possibly shred the paper versions, but that wouldn't mean that the record is lost. That's probably right. I mean, in, you know, these written documents, these, these printed documents generally these days are produced on computer systems, and then those computer records are being kept. There may be handwritten notes as well. Um, some of what we've been hearing were taken from the uh, Biden house were, were some handwritten notes. So, you know, there are some documents that, that include either kind of writings on the margins or even just notes that are being taken in a meeting, which would be classified as well. But the vast majority of classified documents are ones that are produced on computers. And so there's a record, electronic record of that document as well. So really the volume of classified documents produced by the government is not directly related to people taking them home with them when they shouldn't, when they leave office. No, I mean, we're seeing the very tippiest tip of a very, very big iceberg. And there's massive amounts of documents being created. And what we're talking about is just a tiny handful, really. I mean, across all the former occupants of the office. So again, when he was Vice President Biden, Vice President Pence and and Trump as well, former President Trump, you know, we're talking a a relatively small number of, of documents. That's pretty unusual. I mean, that, 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 and that's a very small number. You know, there, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of documents, both that they will have seen uh, in printed form and that have been produced by their administration on all of those matters that, of course, are, you know, being held in computer systems and transferred to the National Archives as appropriate. And for those documents that are not classified, that a former VP or president might want to have for their library or whatever they want to do with it, Those are also records that actually are supposed to go to NARA as well at the end of the administration. So are they allowed to have copies and remove those if they're not classified? I think it's a really important question. And I think this is part of the reason for the challenge is there is something of a judgment call on the margins. I mean, there's certain things that are sort of obviously government documents. So, you know, letters from heads of state and you know classified material that are relevant to government programs. Like those are clearly government materials. But there's some things that might be a little bit more on the edge, you know, a handwritten note from a personal friend, but who also happens to have a government office. You know, is that a government document or is that a letter from a friend? Um, How do we think about that? And I think that those are some of the judgment calls that have to be made. And, you know, again, when you're packing up in a rush, you don't necessarily have the, the time to think that through as carefully as you should. Now, ideally, what should happen is if there are things that are sort of in that interim space, what you should do is pack them up. And probably ship them off to, to to the National Archives and ask them to review them to determine which ones need to be kept at the archive and which ones can be shipped to the library or kept personally. So that would be the ideal way to deal with these sort of edge cases. But, you know, some of these things are personal documents and personal letters that people understandably want to keep for themselves. And sometimes the line between the personal and political is just hard to draw for these very high level officials. So, yeah, no real easy answer here then, is there? You know, I think the the answer probably is going to be to put in better systems. You know, I mean, this was a systems failure. I don't think that this was a case where, you know, with Pence and, and Biden, I don't think this is a case where they sort of maliciously tried to remove classified documents. It was a case where overworked staffers working too fast weren't as careful as they should have been. You know, that's a systems failure. Um, and so I'm, I'm confident that, that the next time a presidential administration ends, there's going to be more care given. And I think there should be more attention in general to the fact that, you know, again, we're, we're producing these huge volumes of, of these classified documents. And maybe 
this is a way, wake up call to realize that maybe some of these things are not all that important after all, and maybe they shouldn't be classified, and maybe we should be rethinking the system more broadly. Yale Law Professor Ona Hathaway, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped 
influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness. 
toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.